Hi, welcome to Bear With Me, which is a podcast series created by the Berkeley Law Alumni Association. Um, this podcast is available Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you might get a podcast. Um, I am Stephanie Clark, and I am moderating today's discussion. We are talking today about being a public defender and starting a public defender job. Um, I am currently a public defender. I've been a public defender for almost 10 years. Uh, I work at the Alameda County Public Defender's Office here in Oakland, same county as Berkeley Law. And I've been doing that since I graduated from law school in 2011 uh, from Berkeley. So that's my very short career history. Um, and we have three other wonderful public defenders with us here today. So I will let them introduce themselves. We have Joe Goldstein Breyer, who I know very well. Um, we have Armilla Staley Ngomo, and we have Ricardo Garcia. And I'm going to ask you folks to give just a little brief introduction of yourself, uh, when you graduated law school, where you work, that kind of stuff. Um, let's start with Joe. Hi, everyone. Um, so as Stephanie said, I'm Joe. And as Stephanie also said, I know Stephanie very well because she and I graduated from Berkeley Law back in 2011 and started together at the Alameda County Public Defender's Office uh, soon thereafter, right after our graduation and after taking the bar exam in 2011. Um, one difference is that after spending one year at the Alameda County Public Defender's Office, I moved to Washington, D.C. for two years and did a fellowship in public defense through um, Georgetown Law. Um, they have a two-year fellowship for people who are just beginning their public defender's careers called the Prettyman Fellowship, where I was um, practicing in D.C. Superior Court while also working in and with a public defense clinic for three L's at Georgetown Law. When I finished that up, I came back to the Alameda County Public Defender's Office, where I've been since. Thanks very much. Uh, Armella, you would like to go next? Yes, uh, my name is Armella Staley-Ngomo. I'm a 2008 graduate of Berkeley Law. I've been a federal public defender for off and on for the past 11 years, since 2010. Um, I've worked in the Central District of California, Los Angeles, and La Las Vegas office, and I am currently in San Diego. Um, it's an amazing job. Prior to this, I did do big law for two years and also clerked for a federal judge in the Central District before joining the Federal Public Defender's Office. Um, there are differences between the offices, which I'm sure I'll explain later, but right now in San Diego, giving, given that it's a border town, I primarily represent people in crimmigration type offenses, drug offenses, um, and then smuggling of undocumented persons. So drug smuggling, what's colloquially called alien smuggling and then immigration offenses, which is either illegal reentry after deportation, using false documents at the border, or other, um, you know, combined criminal and immigration offenses. Also, the majority of our clients are Latinx, given that we're in a border country and a lot of uh, monolingual Spanish speakers. Um, and I'll expand on some of the other offices later. Great. Thanks very much. Ricardo? Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Ricardo Garcia. I graduated in 1995, just a couple of years ago, and I started my practice as a deputy public defender in San Diego County, um, not the federal public defender's office, the county public defender's office, an important distinction. And I practiced there um, until 2018 when I was appointed uh, the public defender for Los Angeles County. I am the first Latino public defender for this county. And I'm also, which I like to say, thank you. I'm also the youngest appointed uh, in the in, in the uh, in the county's history. It's a, the oldest office, and I believe it's still the largest office in the United States. And I'm really excited to be here to answer whatever questions or take the conversation where everybody else wants to take it. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, especially Ricardo. You are, I imagine, a very busy person <laughs> um, running one of the biggest public defender's offices around. So thanks for taking the time to be with us. Um, one place I wanted to start with you all is, in my experience, public defense is a job that has a that people have a lot of preconceptions about, whether that's our clients, um, our opposing counsel, the general public, our family members sometimes. 
Um, and I'm wondering, I'd love to hear from you all, um, and I'd love to start with Ricardo. Um, what are some stereotypes that you've heard or encountered about public defenders that may either be true or untrue? So that's a great question, a great question because I really love it uh, because I see one of the important, my roles as the, the public defender is to address this real, this question as it comes up in panels like this or just in real life on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's because public defenders are misunderstood, not just misunderstood, but maligned. We are what I would call the, the joke, the butt of the joke in, in uh, pop culture when it comes to criminal legal field. And it is that fact that I think creates, perpetuates, uh, and perpetuates the stereotypes about the work we do. You know, anybody who reads crime novels, and I'm not a fan, anybody who watches judicial movies, and again, I'm not a fan, uh, remembers and knows that the scenes often start off with some young man, normally a black man, uh, in prison or jail for some very violent and horrible crime, murder, rape, murder, you name it. And his life is on the line. Um, and some young lawyer, generally male, generally white, fresh out of law school, uh, usually can't tie their shoes even at that point, walks into the jail and says to this suffering uh, young man that if he doesn't let this inexperienced, incompetent attorney handle his murder case, rape case, whatever case, he's going to have the old beleaguered, incompetent public defender, and he's gonna go to prison for the rest of his life. That's how the movie starts, right? Or the novel. And so the, this young person not knowing any different says, of course, because in America, in a capitalist society, uh, you get what you pay for. And you, this person must be really good if they're willing to volunteer their time. Um, and they're not a government appointed lawyer uh, to, uh, to uh, represent me. So then the story goes off perpetuating the stereotype because this young inexperienced lawyer stumbles through the movie or the book making egregious mistakes. But at the end of the story, um, our, uh, our young imprisoned person is, is shown to be innocent or even if not innocent, shown to not be as culpable or through the, the, the brains and capacity of the, of the inexperienced lawyer is set free. And so that storyline is built into the beginning practice of public defenders. And as my two colleagues can probably attest to, you spend most of your career answering questions like, when are you gonna be a real lawyer? Um, are you a lawyer? You're a public defender, are you an attorney? Where'd you go to law school? Um, when are you gonna be a district attorney? That one I got from my mom for a long time until she understood that I was never gonna be a district attorney. And so I think that's part of uh, where that, a significant part of where that comes from. And, and I don't wanna take one other example. It's not just, you know, use as a way to sell a storyline or a book or anything like that. It's part of the way even people who are well-intended um, think of the work we do. And I'll tell one more thing that I was on a panel when I first started with the district attorney, the former district attorney and a judge. And the panel was about racism in the criminal justice system. And before the panel started, there was a skit with a white actor and a black actor, both arrested for the same crime uh, both facing the same judge and so on. And they started off each one saying, the white one said, yeah, I got arrested and my parents spent all this money on the most expensive lawyer possible. And the story was he ends up fine. And the black actor says, yeah, I'm poor and black and I got a public defender and spent the rest of his life in prison. I almost fell out of my seat because they were trying to tell the message of racism in the criminal system, but they were also telling the message of the incompetency in their mind of public defenders. And that's where the story started even before the uh, racial injustice of the system. So I think that's one of the problems. I'm, uh, yeah. That sounds like an incredibly frustrating experience, <laughs> um, especially coming from people who perhaps should know better. But um, Armilla, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that same question. Thank you. I unfortunately echo what Ricardo said um, about some of the common misconceptions, definitely from the public about what a public defender is, but even from other attorneys. Um, but I just also wanted to emphasize that I don't think people have a understanding or they maybe have a misconception of our role as public defendants and uh, public defenders and all of the different roles that we fulfill. Um, we're often the social worker, we're a therapist, 
Um, many of us are drug treatment experts, mental health experts because of all of the mental health issues and substance abuse issues that our clients have. Um, we're also the legal advocates, obviously, and that's what we see. And unfortunately, the misconception that we see in a lot of the movies or shows that are directed about us, but what we do in court or what we say in court. But we do um, play that role of being the legal advocate and being their voice in court. Um, but also that this work is extremely rewarding and intellectually stimulating and extremely satisfying. And unfortunately, I do think that a misconception is that we're doing this work until we can do something else or because we couldn't do something else when the vast majority, if not all public defenders, choose this line of work and stay in this line of work because it is one of the most rewarding careers within the law. Um, but I just wish people understood more that it's much more. In fact, I sometimes I wish I could not do all the other stuff and just research and write and represent, quote unquote, represent my clients in court zealously because you're dealing with so many ancillary issues all the time related to their families, related to the witnesses, related to our clients themselves and their issues. Um, and so it's a much more holistic way of representing people that I don't think people understand. And that's definitely not portrayed um, in the media or um, on television, but it really is satisfying, intellectually rewarding work. Um, and I don't think you can find that combination of things in, in many of the works work within the law, um, in my experience, especially having tried other areas of practice. You actually have led me right into my next question. So I'm going to stick with you, Armella, for just a moment, um, which is that as you mentioned, being a public defender encompasses a lot of different types of daily tasks and types of daily practice. There's, you know, actual trial work where you're trying to persuade a jury. There's legal research and writing where you're maybe trying to persuade a judge. And then there's a lot of social worky type, you know, building relationships with clients, with service providers, with district attorneys, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm wondering if, if you folks are able to narrow it down to one specific thing, what is your favorite part of being a public defender? I'm going to stay with you for a moment, Armilla. My favorite part is um, what we call mitigation, primarily sentencing mitigation, um, because it involves telling my client's story. Oftentimes, or always, we're the only ones who get to know our clients and their families in a way that nobody else in court um, will know, not the probation officers, not the pretrial services officers in the case of federal court, not the prosecutors, and definitely not the judge. So I really enjoy digging into their lives. I, I like that counselor, therapist role, social work role that I mentioned in collecting records and getting to learn about their history. Unfortunately, it's often traumatic um, and reviewing those records can sometimes even cause secondary trauma to ourselves as attorneys and um, having to read through these issues and understanding what our clients have been through. But I really enjoy humanizing my clients to the prosecutor first in plea negotiations, if that's the way it's going to go, trial preparations and telling their story, and then ultimately the judge, because so many of our cases do end up pleading and do end up in sentencing, just really digging in and taking the time to do that. Um, it also involves writing, which I enjoy, but it's the writing that I like because I'm personifying them and humanizing them. So you're not just seeing what's on paper. So that's the part that I like most about my work. And quite honestly, it's probably the majority of what I do, given that so many of our cases do end up um, pleading and in plea negotiations, but it's also very, a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of work and a lot of digging both into our clients' lives and pulling that information out of them when you're speaking to them and their family, but also in going through records and trying to compile it in a way that um, the judges look at them not just for what they did, but who they are. Joe, what about you? What's your favorite part of being a PD? It's very, it's a very similar answer, but it's kind of more general. It's just our clients in general. Um, I love getting to know our clients. I love getting to um, try to help them um, in terms of their case, but also in terms of their life. Um, I see it as an opportunity for me to um, put them in contact with services that our government has deprived of them of previously, but at least while they're meeting me um, and they're stuck with me on what is some of their worst days, I can hopefully try to um, help them 
past just their criminal matter. So just like what Armila is talking about with gathering mitigation um, and helping them with their case, um, most of our clients will be released eventually and will be given a chance to return to the community. Um, and I see it as an opportunity to try to help them um, beyond just what their criminal matter is that landed them um, in, you know, uh, in a relationship with me. But I, I just also love getting to know them. Our clients have gone through more than most of us can ever imagine. Um, and they are incredibly resilient and um, have persevered under uh, terrible and difficult conditions. And um, I find that inspiring. I find that motivational. I find that moving. Um, and um, I love getting to know them um, and getting to tell their stories, but also getting to help them to continue to write their stories. Thanks so much. Ricardo, I'm going to ask you the same question. Well, at, at the risk of, of sounding redundant, so I won't. Mm -hmm. what, what Joe and Armelia said, I mean, um, it really is when I was practicing direct representation as they are, it is everything they've said um, without question. Um, now in looking at, from my perspective as a public defender, it, it's, um, it's trying to look at my my staff, my people as my clients now. Understanding that what made the job so difficult was uh, what I see now is the uh, failure of the social safety net to protect entire segments mm -hmm. of our population. And then while that social safety net tries to help those who, some of who need an institutional systemic racism that has intentionally in my mind now at least in the past, I think they're, they're trying to rectify it today. I certainly think we are in Los Angeles, um, excluded our, our clients, our population. So where the social safety nets were trying to be built where you have programs, attempting to create programs in the community or um, in hospital or in education that were poor at best, and, and they intentionally, in my mind, excluded those who were caught up in the criminal legal system. Mm -hmm. And so that placed on public defenders, the burden uh, that was just described to have to be all these things in one. When I went into the practice, I didn't realize I was gonna have to be looking up programs and digging, spending you know, my evenings trying to find a program to get my client into. I didn't realize I was gonna have to try to find a social worker to help them understand and learn myself, you know, how to identify substance use disorder vis-a-vis -vis schizophrenia. You know, that, there are other people who were trained to do that. I was trained to be a litigator. I just wanted to be a litigator. And understanding as I practiced, although while I was practicing, I think it was more difficult to understand it because I was just trying to do it. So it's understanding now that uh, systemic failures, intentional or otherwise, created that reality. And I love being able to try to fix it. I guess you ask, what do we love about it? What I love now is, uh, trying to find the solutions. And I think as they, as both uh, Joe and Mila described, it's imperfect, right? You do well sometimes, you fall short other times. Some clients are well-served in the sense that they get everything you wanna be able to get to them and other ones keep you up at night because you feel like you couldn't, you couldn't help, right? It's the same thing now for my, for my team, trying to get them the resources they want, losing sleep because I don't get them everything they deserve and need, uh, but really excited on the few moments where we're able to score successfully that way. That satisfaction, I think, of helping, contributing, and moving the well-being of other human beings uh, is the best part of the job. I mean, there are few, in my mind, more noble and more and more important professions in the law. In fact, I can't think of one within the law than being a public defender um, because you, so medicine is probably one of the few other things. Like you save a person's life, you fundamentally have the ability uh, to help uh, navigate that change. And the frustration, the difficulty I think described is that uh, you can't always do it, right? And uh, it eats at you, keeps you up, makes you chew your nails, whatever it is that you do. But I love the feeling of getting up and doing it the next day. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to ask you folks to take yourselves back to whatever year it was that you graduated law school, or I guess maybe for some of us, um, 
we were already lawyers when we started our first job in public defense, but go back to right before you started your first job in public defense. What were you most worried about, about being a public defender? And what were you most excited about, about being a public defender? Um, I'll start with you, Joe, since I think it might've been most recent for you. <laughs> I, I was most worried about failure and about letting my clients down and probably on some level, just embarrassment, you know, like um, I saw it very much as like a trial job. So like when I envisioned what it meant to be a public defender, it was, I would show up with my briefcase and, you know, start my homicide trial or something, you know? And um, so I just, the, it was a somewhat stage fright in conjunction with letting down this individual who is relying on me. Um, and relatedly, what I was most excited about is walking into the court with my briefcase and trying that homicide trial um, and me being the person standing between the government, you know, and my client saying, stop, you know, hold on, we're going to talk to 12 members of the community about what really happened that day. Um, and um, so what I think on, in both my most excited and most scared moments were somewhat based on um, a fiction. You know, there's, you know, there's some shreds of reality to it. But um, I was just scared about letting letting my clients down and letting my colleagues down um, and letting a lot of my idols down because, you know, I was really excited to be in the public defender's office and I looked up to public defenders. Um, so I wanted to perform really well for them too. Um, but I was also just like so excited. There's like, it's, you all know, like there's nothing like the thrill and the rush of trial work, you know? Um, so I thought that would be really awesome. And I was right in a lot of ways about that. I guess I was right about both parts in certain ways. Awesome. Uh, Armilla, what do you think about that? What, what were you most excited about? What were you most scared of? And if, and did those come true, <laughs> if you feel like sharing? Yeah, I would echo what Joe said and, and say that a lot of my fears, I think, again, came from the misconceptions about the work. Um, so I was worried about failure. I was worried about like high caseloads, not being able to represent each client fully, being too young, being too green. They want someone more experienced, um, you know, as few, one of few Black women who uh, represent indigent clients in federal court. I also had kind of the worries of, of what would my clients think of me? What would my office think of me? What would the judges think of me? Um, but at the same time, I was super excited about the opportunity to finally represent my community. So as much as I felt like an outsider coming into federal court, I was one of the few people who is Black, who is an immigrant, who is a native Spanish speaker. And there were not a lot of those types of people in court at all, let alone in the federal public defender's office. And so I was excited after coming from big law to finally do work that I was passionate about, to finally do the work that I'd went to law school for, um, and to finally do the work that I had kind of groomed myself for in law school by doing some of the amazing clinics that Berkeley had, like the death penalty clinic and the asylum representation clinic. Those things translated so easily to the direct services that you do as a public defender. And I was hoping I'd be able to continue on that professionally now so that work didn't feel like a job and didn't feel like a burden. It was something I was super excited to go to every day. Um, so the worries, I think, did not really come to fruition. It, obviously, um, as Ricardo mentioned, I mean, you do have those cases where you wish you could have done more, think about what more you could have done, um, and do feel like if your caseloads were slightly lower, if you had all the time in the world, you could have had another outcome. But you often just hear back from your clients and your families about how grateful and thankful they are and were about the work that you did, and it helps remind you and helps to motivate you to keep doing it because we do lose a lot. <laughs> so losing becomes something that you define differently. It's not winning a trial or winning the case or getting the sentence that you want. But if it, it's often just the feeling that your clients give you or that they say about you um, after it's all over and you know the one or two months off or the one or two years off or that occasional not guilty, um, even though we go to trial even less frequently than state and county public defenders do, um, it again comes back to the worries kind of erase themselves if you just do all that you can and your clients remind you that they felt like you did also. Um, but so exciting 
the work is, is so amazing and so interesting and the clients are just the best part of the job. Awesome. What about you, Ricardo? Do you remember what your worries and excitements were before you started? Yeah, I can go back to 1995. <laughs> uh, so I, actually I do because I, I didn't come to being a public defender sort of well, I don't know if there's a traditional way to do it or, or an expected way to do it, but I, I didn't know what it was, quite frankly. Um, when I was uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do when I graduated, I knew I didn't want to work in big law. I knew that from the day I walked in, onto campus and I'd explored different things. And quite frankly, I thought I was going to teach. I'd been, I was lucky enough to spend a semester uh, in Spain and teaching there and learning there. And so I thought, I'm going to go back you know, and drink coffee on La Ramblas and teach. I would have better life, but uh, other forces in my life were telling me I needed to be a responsible adult and, and get a job. And so I literally had a good friend at Berkeley uh, who uh, let me borrow his suit, six foot one or two. I'm five nine on a good day. And we folded the sleeves and the, and the leg, pant legs up, taped them, and I went to an interview for the San Diego County Public Defender's Office. Not really know. I mean, I knew what public defense was. I didn't know what it was. I'd taken laws on criminal law. And he, they, my friends knew me better because of the classes I took when I could take, uh, you know, regulation of vice, uh, advanced criminal law. I took them because I found them interesting, not because I thought it was going to be a career path. Um, and I looked like, uh, you know, a, a middle schooler wearing his high school brother's suit going to my first formal dance to this interview. And I don't know what they saw in me, but they offered me a job. And so I, I, I use that preamble to say, when I arrived, I was terrified I'd made a mistake, right? I thought I was gonna teach or go into international law. And I had all these friends going into these very heady jobs, right? Going to work for federal judges, Supreme Court judges, big firms where their salaries were, you know, one of my good friends, his, his bonus was my entire first year salary. And so I thought there was more that I should be doing with this Berkeley law degree at the time. I should be doing this heady job that I should be, you know, writing treaties on God knows what. And so I'd wondered if I had been a failure because I didn't know the work. Was I failing? Was I falling short? And would I not enjoy this? And um, my greatest excitement at the same time was saying, well, I'm going to give this a chance and I want to do this. And I was excited to learn and figure out, was this the right job for me? Uh, was this the right career? Was this the right path? And I feel blessed that I did find it. It has become a lifetime. I'm a lifer. I love the work I do. It is so exciting. I think that description cannot be under. Sort of, it, is, it is just fun. I mean, for all the difficulty and pain and suffering and headache and exhaustion, it is so much fun. And when the alarm goes off in the mornings, I hit snooze, not because I don't want to go to work. And this is my whole career, but because I really would love to learn how to sleep for an extra 15 minutes. Um, just 15. That's all I ask. But it, it, it is, and the most exciting thing of that beginning part was meeting other people who, some who knew them and had ideas, just as afraid as I was of the first day, uh, and building those bonds. I am still incredibly good friends and care so much about the people who started with me, although I haven't seen some of them in over 20 years. I, it, their lives are important to me, their, their futures, their paths. And that bond that you make that first year is, is incredible. So that's, that's, uh, those are my, my, my greatest fear and, and my, what I enjoyed the most at that first start. Thank you for saying that. Cause I do, obviously there's, when we ask these questions, there's a lot of, um, I don't know what sort of, what sounds like negativity. Obviously this is like a very, very hard job. And I think all of us are pretty frank about that, but it is the, one of the most exciting jobs in the world, I think. Um, I, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to be bored in this job unless you're like sitting in court for three hours waiting for your case to get called. I don't know if that happens in federal court the way it happens in state court, but, um, but yeah, I agree. It's, this is a job that is just like always interesting. You always get to learn some new thing about some new like scientific discipline or mechanical issue on a car or something you never, never thought you'd have to know about. So thank you for saying that. I, I agree completely. Um, so similar vein about, you know, what your, what your ideas were when you started, I want to look back now. When I started, there was someone in my office who had collected a document where he had gone all around to all of the senior attorneys in our office and asked them 
what is one thing that a, a brand new public defender should know about the job? And then he sort of shared this document around and it was such a, it was just such a great thing to have and such a great thing to read as a starting out PD. There was everything on there that from like silly advice to very serious advice to very practical advice. So I'm curious if the three of you could give one piece of advice from where you are now, knowing what you know now to a brand new public defender, what would it be? Um, and anyone want to start us off? Ricardo looks like he wants to start us off. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Just because I, I guess I've been doing this the longest. My advice to any brand new public defender is to start your 457 or 401k the day you start work. Start your deferred compensation. And you're thinking to yourself, what's deferred compensation? What's a 457 or 401k? I, you know, I'm 20-something I'm, I'm years old. I, believe me, I didn't know either. What you do, and the reason why it's so important, is you're going to get paid a salary. And if you stay for your career there, you're going to get retirement. Retirement benefits get worse and worse for public defenders. It seems like every five minutes. But if you set a percentage of your salary aside, 10%, that's what I recommend. In this 401-457 savings plan, your county will allow you to save that money while you work. And every time you get a raise and you move up the, the career path, it's going to be 10% of your money. And when you start, you're not going to miss it because it's going to be a small part of an already relatively small salary, depending on where you work. And by the time you're done, it's going to be a lot of money. And what I mean by the time you're done is you may want to stay in this job for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I have lawyers who, who have been here for 45 years in LA. Whatever amount of time that is, you want to be able to, at the end of your career, be in the same place you are at the beginning of your career, which is you want to be able to do this work because you want to, not because you have to. And at the end of your career, you want to be in a position where you can you remain a public defender because you want to, not because you have to. Because this job requires passion. It requires love. You know, you, you start up, up here knowing in your head, I'm touching my head and they can't see me. You start up knowing about it in your head. But at the end of the day, you've got to feel it in your heart and you've got to know it in your gut that this is the work for you. And when, what you don't want is you don't want to end up in a place where the heart and the gut are gone and all you got is the intellectual part. And so if you reach that point where it's just your head, you want to be able to say, I can walk away and I can pay my mortgage and I can take care of my kids or I can go off to Hawaii and never look at a casebook again. You don't want to have to stay because... The, the Benjamins require you to stay. So start that 457 and 401k and be in that position wherever you are in your career. I'm probably gonna end up dying at my desk. That's a good That is very, very good advice. <laughs> um, Joe, what's your advice to a brand new public defender? Um, I, you know, in like trial advocacy classes or when you're first learning, you know, the rules of evidence and how to apply them in trial and, um, there's a question being asked by opposing counsel and you know something's wrong with it, but you're not sure what, you know, you object and by the time you stand up, you know, you'll have your answer as to what was wrong with that. But if something sounds wrong, object. Um, I think that applies in your public defense career generally. If something feels wrong in your gut or in your heart, um, and even if you don't, you can't put a label to it or you can't cite a statute in particular or a law in particular or a case, um, I think it's important to trust your gut and trust your heart. If something feels wrong about what's happening to your client, um, I think you should, you should trust that um, and go with your gut um, and never be, it's easier said than done, um, but it's part of our job to speak truth to power. And I think um, we're, we're never on the easy side. This job is not easy. Um, and we're never, everybody in this courtroom is against us. There's a deputy there trying to make sure your client remains in a cage. There's a judge there um, who used to be in the DA's office. And then there's the DA whose job it is to, to prosecute your client. Um, so it's not like you're gonna have this audience who's all like, yeah, you're totally right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we were thinking that too. Um, but it's our job to stand up and to speak truth to power. And when something feels wrong um, and something seems unfair and unjust, um, 
you're probably right. Um, so trust your gut about that. Also very good advice. Armilla, what do you have? Um, so my advice is, especially for those who want a career in criminal defense and as a public defender, is to really take care of yourself and have balance. But I'll start by saying that um, it starts with even like what you do at work. I spent my first year being angry all the time. I was angry at the government. I was angry at the prosecutor. I was angry at the judge. I was angry at society. I was just mad, mad, mad sending call types of emails, no, you can't get this extension, no, you can't, you know, and I just, that's not sustainable. Um, I stepped away, I actually started as a federal public defender and for a year and then left to clerk and came back. And so clerking for that year, I clerked in the same courthouse where the U.S. Attorney's Office was. And so I was forced to interact in a more informal way with prosecutors. <laughs> but that actually helped, right? Because even that small talk, even that saying hi to them, even just getting to know them made me loosen up a little bit about my anger towards them. And it ultimately helped my practice. It helped my clients to be able to have conversations with them, to be able to negotiate certain deals with them, to be able to see them in a different light than I initially saw them as, which, you know, to some extent, I still think many of them can be just kind of like robots who want the worst for your client who are just out. You know, we are all in the system. We kind of agreed to enter the system in some sort of way, but as advocates for our clients. And so not just being angry at everything all the time really helped me chill out a little bit as a public defender and I think have better results for my clients and for myself to be able to do this job for a long time. Uh, burnout is real and that will contribute to the burnout. And so really understanding that I needed to have time outside of work for myself and um, needed to address and we all constantly need to address our own balance and our own mental health and our own physical health along with doing the job is really important because it is such an, an emotionally invested and passionate job. That does not mean we're any less zealous and that does not mean we're any more hardworking, but it does mean that we'll be able to do it for a long time and it does mean we will better represent our clients. Um, I think it takes many years sometimes to get to that balance and many years to stop being angry. But if I, someone could tell me kind of going in, you know, to kind of not necessarily feel that way all the time because it's not going to lead to better outcomes and definitely is not going to help you last in this career, which many of us do end up doing for a really long time. Um, that would kind of be my advice. It's not a sprint. It's kind of a cross-country run. Take your time balance, keep the things that you love to do before you were an attorney or before you're a public defender going um, and know that that'll ultimately enhance your work and not hurt it because um, it is very easy to burn out very quickly if you aren't conscious of that all of the time um, in your practice. Great. Uh, yeah, Joe, what do you have to add to that? Just that everything Armilla said is completely right. And young public defenders, remember that once you get to your office, you're not necessarily even going to hear that, um, or that's not the only thing you're going to hear. Um, you're still going to hear a lot of the noise of how hard and how often everybody is working and how few hours of sleep they're getting. And just remember to all of you new public defenders, just like when you were in law school and people were advertising how hard they were working, that did not necessarily translate to them doing the best in the class. Like it's still a bunch of people who um, love to talk about you know how sleep deprived and overworked they are and they were not necessarily um as you may or may not know the the people who did the best in those classes that you know that they were burning out on yeah ricardo what do you have to add well i i, I wanted to add because this is such an important question um and i love what both jordan and Mia said because they're right I, I i'm looking at it from my perspective obviously and listening to you both of you say this is wonderful um, I have a piece of slate on my desk to this day that I've had for a long time that says balance because I have to remind myself even after 26 years to have balance. Um, and I get asked this a lot by brand new lawyers. And one of the privileges I have is I can share this advice. Um, and I sort of, I'm not saying it should be distilled, but I've distilled it in so these five concepts that have been shared with me over time. And the first I would say is give and receive love every day, every single day. Find a way to give and receive love. And that's for you to figure out what that means. 
every day that you can, no, every day, stimulate your brain with something that has nothing to do with this profession, right? Figure out something, whether it's a different type of book you read, whether it's art, whatever it is, get this noodle uh, in your skull working on something that has nothing to do with the law because we can get so wrapped up in just this work, right? I love the anger thing. That's about to give me that. That's such a great advice. I'm not going to give it to new lawyers because I want them maybe to be a little angry right now, but I love that because for sustainability, you got to, you got to let go of the anger. I know I had to at some point. Um, also, if you're religious, if you believe in God, and this is only if, I think it's important you commune with that spirituality, you commune with that God, uh, if you believe in that. I would say also, honor your body, right? This thing's got to carry you. And I'm not telling you need to be some nutty CrossFit athlete or do some, you know, workouts or eat particular types of diet, but understand that your physical health impacts your emotional and psychological health. And over time, if you let the physical health go, your emotional and psychological health is going to go. And you're not going to do this work. And the last thing, which is my personal favorite, do something every day that is absolutely personally selfish. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It isn't something you give to your family, your friends, your clients. You're just giving it to you. I like to share this one because I like really bad TV. So every night, I'm, a, I'm an old guy, so I'm asleep by 9, 30, 10 o'clock, even when I don't want to be. I'm out cold. But every night for about half an hour, I watch really bad TV. So bad that my kids are afraid to watch it. My wife thinks, what are you doing? You're corrupting your brain. But for me, that 30 minutes is mine. Everything else is gone. So I would say that that helps me in the balance. I, that balance, anger. Uh, and yeah, uh, Joe, I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't get a chance to hear this stuff from practicing lawyers as much anymore. So for Joe's point about the, the voices, the cacophony, I never thought of it that way. That is so right. In law school, we all, it's all we talk about to each other. How hard we're working. Oh my God, I studied six hours. You know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Filter it the same way you did in law school at the job. Those are all... Yeah, those are all really, really excellent. I wanted to actually add one too that kind of echoes something you guys have said. And it took me a long time to appreciate this advice because when it was first given to me, I bristled against it. And it's actually not so much advice. It's just something to remember, which is that no matter what happens in court, you get to go home at the end of the day. And I think the reason, I, I, there's two, two reasons that I like that, that advice that are kind of contradictory. One is that it helps me remember that depending on what the situation is, my client probably doesn't get to go home at the end of the day or might not. And that's really helpful to remember um, sort of the stakes of what you're doing in court. But on the on the flip side, it also helps me. I was someone, we've all talked about this a little bit. I was someone who had a ton of indignation and anger and also anxiety when I was an early lawyer. Like I would wake up, you know, filled with dread about whatever it was that was going to happen in court that morning. And um, to a certain degree, that could be really um, inhibiting. You know, it's sort of hard to like do your best work when you're freaked out about what might happen. And so the person who gave me that advice was sort of saying like, you're not gonna go home in a cage, you're gonna go home. So like your, your client is already freaked out and anxious and your client needs you to be calm and steady and clear headed and doing whatever the work is that you're supposed to be doing. Um, and that's been really helpful for me over the years to remember that, that it's my job to do the work and it's my job to be a steady presence for my client. And then, you know, if I need to go back to the office and fall apart, I can do that. Um, but that it's, it's not really helping anyone if I just spend my entire time filled with dread or, or rage or, or whatever emotion I might be experiencing at that moment. Um, so anyway, that's my contribution to the to the advice discussion. But these are all really, really good ones. Thank you guys for sharing. Um, I want to switch topics just a little bit. I almost feel like we should have ended on that one. But I have a couple other questions I want to ask you guys. Um, a lot of us have brought up the idea of our our clients and our client our relationships with our clients as some of the best and most rewarding part of the job. And I think it's probably really hard to do this job and not have that be your impression that the clients are some of the best part of the job. But sometimes, I mean, just being really honest, sometimes our relationships with our clients can be really challenging, um, either based on stereotypes they have of us, stereotypes we have of them, or just a personality conflict sometimes. 
Um, and so I'm wondering if anyone has a story or a, or a memory, obviously, you know, maintaining client confidences about a particularly challenging relationship, either with a particular client or if there's one aspect of client relationships that you find particularly challenging. Um, I'm going to start with Armilla because you look you look ready to say something. <laughs> I, I do. I unfortunately do have a couple of those stories. Um, overall, this is client-centered work and the clients are the best part um, and the most grateful for us doing this work. But in federal defense, we have a lot of white collar clients, which tend to be the more difficult clients. Um, you know, they tend to be the more privileged clients, maybe the more wealthy clients, but obviously by the time they're in court, they do need point, court appointed counsel because they're unable to pay for their attorney. And so I've had my share of very difficult white collar clients, particularly in Los Angeles, which we see more of that than we do here in the border, tax fraud, Medicare fraud, um, all types of fraud. But the client in particular who I remember was a, a tax fraud client, um, you know, I was everything from being called incompetent, you know, insulted. My paralegal who helped me a lot on the case was insulted as well. Um, but to some extent, those clients can make you, can drive you even more. Uh, you want to prove to them that you aren't incompetent and you want to win them over and understand that a lot of our job is to build that rapport with the clients and gain their trust. So I just try to remind myself of that. Um, fortunately, also as assigned, uh, as appointed counsel, we can we can be fired and our clients can ask for other representation. So if it comes to that, um, uh, and they suggest that, there are times when I've said, you know, I'm happy to schedule a new appointment of counsel hearing and, and we can go before the court with that if it, if it really gets bad. Anytime I've said that, they've always um, backed down and, and wanted me to continue representing them. But it is hard and you will come across clients who either truly don't want you representing them and think you're incompetent or whatever, or they're just saying those things because they really want to push you or because they believe some of the stereotypes and misconceptions that we discussed before and they want to make sure those things aren't true. Um, and so how I've always handled it is just what I do and what I try to do with all of them is staying calm, digging into their case, going through their discovery, explaining to them what I see and what I think about their case and try to handle it in that manner, bring in other people um, if necessary, other attorneys, other staff um, to talk with them as well. But it, it can be hard um, and it can get very personal. But I, I would say it's the small uh, percentage of cases that I have where I have difficult clients. Um, for, in federal court, they do tend to be my white collar clients. Um, but they're so few and far between that it obviously has not deterred me from doing this work. And, and I appreciate their pushing me and giving me that extra drive to, to make sure that they think I am representing them in a way that retained attorneys could, right? Because often as public defenders, that's what we always want to show is that we're the best attorneys that money can't buy. And we want to prove that to our clients to the extent that we can. And if not, they obviously have other choices and, and sometimes do decide to go that route. You've kind of answered this a little bit, but I wonder if over the years you've learned anything from your difficult relationships that sort of make it easier the next time around. Like, is there anything that you figured out of how to deal with a client that you're having a hard time with? Um, there's nothing necessarily that I figured out. I just think myself having done this work for longer, I've just gained, become more confident. So I think just um, exuding that confidence and, and trying to explain that confidence to them and having just the confidence in myself has helped me handle them better. Um, I'm, I'm sure I've gained tips from other attorneys in, in the rare occasions that I've had to bring someone else in or seen how they build rapport or see how they build those relationships with difficult clients. Um, I, I have gained kind of ways on how to speak to those clients and what to show those clients to get their trust and confidence in me. But I also just think it's just been with experience on the job that you feel better able to handle those clients. And then you just feel more confident in yourself as an attorney that when someone calls you incompetent, you don't automatically assume that they're right which I, doesn't necessarily happen your first or second year, you, you might truly believe them and be scared that they're right. And I think over time, hopefully that fades. Yeah. I remember really early in my career, I had a client who um, had a, a relatively long rap sheet. So I sort of assumed he kind of has done this before. He knows how the system works and, you know, we're busy, whatever. I sort of rushed through a lot of the initial steps of sort of, you know, explaining the process to him. And 
at some point it became clear that he was not willing to work with me at all. He was not answering my questions. He was sort of in a weird way, like trying to trick me into like doing things that, and I could not figure out what was going on. I could not figure out what had gone wrong and why he was sort of pushing against me so hard. And what I ultimately figured out after we like had a long heart to heart was that I had very, very quickly and in a very rushed way at the very beginning of his case told him that we were gonna enter a plea of not guilty because that's always how you start every criminal case. And he wanted to plead guilty. He wanted to take a plea deal or, or just to plead guilty and, and, and do his sentence. And I had never explained to him sort of how that process worked and how like, if he wanted to plead guilty, he would eventually have that opportunity, but that we always start a criminal case with a plea of not guilty. And he felt like I wasn't, listening to his desires for the case and, um, uh, you know, that I wasn't sort of asking him what he wanted. And so he assumed that I was just going to do something that was contrary to his wishes. And that taught me, you know, it made me very humble very early on that it's, there's nothing that's sort of too minor to explain to a client or to at least sort of check in with them about and make sure you're on the same page with them about, um, because something as simple as starting off a case with a plea of not guilty can sometimes not make sense to someone or not be what they want to do. So anyway, that's my little two cents about it. Um, Joe, do you have thoughts about uh, how you've, any challenging parts of relationships with clients and what you may have learned from it? Well, I'm not sure what I've learned yet. I certainly have the, <laughs> the challenges are certainly there. Um, and I often have to tell myself, don't fall in love. And and that sounds really silly and corny, but it, I easily become very personally, emotionally invested in my clients and their cases. And um, it reminds me of something that you said earlier, Stephanie, about the like, I'm going home every night and, um, and I need to go home and I love to go home. And I've got a wife and two little kids who I enjoy being with when I can not just physically, but mentally present with them. And that's hard. Um, and that's something I've had to learn to do um, because um, I can become so emotionally invested and I love the emotional investment, but at some point it takes a toll that is counterproductive. Um, I wouldn't do this work as you know Ricardo was talking about. I wouldn't do this work if my heart wasn't in it. And I love having my heart in it. Um, but I also, as Ricardo talked about, I need to take care of my heart among other body parts. And, um, that means, um, you know, being able to, um, care, but not care so much, um, that it's, that it's unproductive even. Um, and it means, you know, caring about my clients and having love for them, but, um, but not, not being destroyed and devastated um, when things don't go right um, and making sure that I can bounce back um, and not taking things so personally when the DA extends an offer that seems so inhumane to me. Um, they're not making me that offer. It's my client and I do care. Um, I, I care deeply, but I need to not be so overwhelmed by it at times. And that's something um, that I know I need to do, which is not to say that I always do it. So it's something I'm still working on. We're, we're all a work in progress, I think, in this work. <laughs> Ricardo, do you have any thoughts about challenging client relationships? Sure. I, I think uh, both Joe and are on point. And your point is really well taken. Like, first, I did, I used to say the same thing. I get to go home. You know, I used to joke that once I had a kid, I get to go home and, you know, pet my dog and kick my kid, you know, drink my beer, do whatever it is that, you know, madness that we do in our lives. Uh, that was my way of being non-judgmental. And whatever people do in their lives, right? We get to do that at the end of the day. And this person, not all of them, but some of them, a lot of them, actually all of them in my later practice, last 10 years, all I did was homicide cases, capital cases. They're all stuck in prison or in jail with all the horrors of jail that even those of us who do this work don't really understand the politics, right? the violence, the food, the smells, no one wants to be there. And so that would allow me to be absolutely forgiving. Um, and it was harder, it wasn't perfect, but forgiving of whatever comments they made about me personally. The other thing was, is I realized I, over time, I learned not, I personalize my work, it's personal to me, um, it's passionate for me, but I don't personalize my clients' 
relationship with you, right? I create a little bit of a distance because, you know, I'm too emotionally invested. And then for me, my practice, and I'm not seeing everything as clearly. Um, and I learned that more as I got older and did work longer. Uh, and as I lost some of that anger or translated that anger into something else. Uh, the, I do want to share two funny, to me, one funny and client story, which happened early on in my practice, which relates to difficulties and my ego. And one later on, which deals with difficult clients. The first one was, I was a brand new lawyer. Although at the time, I think I, by now I was doing it for six months. So I thought I was a grizzled veteran. And we had misdemeanor court. And I had a law clerk at the time. I mean, that's how crazy it is. I've been practicing six, six months and they gave me a law clerk. Who does that? Um, so I had this, this law clerk, but he'd come back to school. He was from West Virginia. And so I was all of 26. And I think he was 46. Um, and so there we are in this, uh, having a conversation with an out-of-custody client. And the law clerk is sitting in a chair off to the side. And I'm behind this, this desk that they had for us to interview clients in the courthouse in San Diego downtown in what we called uh, um, misdemeanor arraignments. And I'm behind the desk. And he's this elderly, and I can use that word now since I'm over 50, uh, gentleman, sailor. He was arrested for all things, uh, an undersized lobster. Don't let me get into that because it's ridiculous. But he looked like the stereotypical sailor. He had everything but the hat. He'd been out in the sun for a long time. He, he was experienced. He knew life. And as I'm talking to him, he was very polite to me. So he just let me go on about the facts and this and that. We're going to fight it and this and all that. And I'm all pumped up over a lobster. And he looks at me ever so politely and he goes, son, that's very nice of you, but I'd like to talk to the lawyer. I'm like, I'm the lawyer. <laughs> me, I'm the lawyer. And he's, he's very nice again, son, please let, let, let me speak to the lawyer. And he, again, I'm about to me, I, 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 I went to Berkeley for God's sakes, man. You know, I'm a lawyer. And then he lost his temper because he'd had enough of this petulant, you know, child telling him, what was what? And he turned to the other person, the, the law clerk, and very upset. You know, I don't appreciate you letting this, whatever he is, you know, talk to me this morning. He and the law clerk to his benefit. Sorry, sir, but he's the lawyer. I'm the law clerk. But it was, I realized it was all my ego because the rest of the day, even maybe to this day, it irks me a little bit. And I, darn it, I was the lawyer. But I learned again about patience. It's not about me, it's about their world. Because while that that lobster case may not be a big deal for me in my life. It was a big deal for him because he could lose all these abilities to fish and that's how he made a living. The contrast to that was later in my practice, um, I had a client that committed a very violent crime and just uh, disposed of the victim in a very horrendous way. I can't talk about the facts that my the information he gave me, but what I can tell you is that he was a very difficult person to get along with. He was miserable. And, he, it was a capital case and he would play me and co-counsel against each other. And uh, I, he was so difficult that my co-counsel was a good friend of mine, John O'Connell. The man never loses his temper, doesn't even flinch. And I heard him yelling at him one time. I'm like, to get John to, I was like, what did you do? Like threatened his mother or something? The guy was just really difficult person. And we just couldn't get through him. And in some conversation, I realized that at a point in our childhood, we had lived in the same city at the same time. And we were the same age. You know, it kind of goes to what Brian Stevens said, you know, no person is the worst thing, worst several things that they're accused of. And it was realizing and making that connection about our childhood and experiences we had that were very similar in this location. We may have even been in the same park or the same, you know, movie theater at the same time at the, you know, at that age and, re and making that human connection and realizing no matter how horrendous the allegations and maybe guilty or not guilty, done them or not done them, you know, sinner or non-sinner, that that connection, seeing that he was a person, a human being, he is one and has value. That's the mitigation term, his value. That to me allows me um, to see through, through all the, what I'll call bad behavior. And what's interesting is that sometimes you use that on your own kids when they're pushing you every button, right, Joe? They're pushing every single button, no matter how adorable and wonderful they are. They're magical about that. But what we do as parents is we remember those beautiful moments. You know, we see the, the, the best part in them and we can translate that. Um, sometimes I think if we treated, when you do this work well for a long time or even for a short period of time, if we treated the people who are important in our lives as well as sometimes we treat our clients, sometimes our own personal lives would be a little bit smoother. And I could, I could learn to live that.
advice a little better myself. Well, folks, we are drawing close to our time here, but before we wrap up, I just want to ask each of you to briefly share one hope you have for the future, either for your own personal work or, um, you know, more broadly, the future of public defense as a profession. I'm sure we could all speak about that for hours and hours, but um, let's try to keep it brief. Um, let's see, I will start with Armilla. Um, I had to think about that one for a little bit. <laughs> um, I mean, I do have hope for public defense. On the federal defense side, there's been a lot more litigation and then just in society, a lot more acknowledgement about systemic racism and how it affects our community and how it affects the criminal justice system. You know, the unfortunate deaths um, at the hands of police by of several black men and the uprising, particularly while we had kind of a focused um, audience now with the COVID-19 pandemic has allowed us to renew those conversations. We also have very actively been addressing racism in federal court, particularly against immigrants and people of Latin American descent um, and how these laws and legislation are passed with an absolute racial intent in mind about which immigrants should be here and how they should come here and what they should do when they're here. And so I have hope that we'll keep pushing those buttons, that we'll keep having more public defenders appointed to the bench um, at the state level and at the federal level, and that we will have demographic and professional diversity on the bench so that we can start seeing a more impartial um, bench to represent people, or I'm sorry, to represent the community and to show our clients that it's not just one type of person who's on the bench making these decisions. I have hope for that. We have seen that um, very timely right now with the Biden administration in which they really are, at least in federal court, focusing on racial and demographic diversity on the federal bench. And then we're seeing that at the state level. We've been seeing that, thankfully, for a while at the state level, and that has continued. I want to see that keep happening, and I think that's is how we're ultimately going to have more fair and just results for our clients as criminal defense attorneys. Um, but I also have hope for the work. We keep attracting amazing people to do this work and they want to stay. And I wanna continue those efforts. I'd like to see public defense work also become more diverse um, with women, people of color, immigrants, of people who speak other languages as their native language. And um, you know that is coming to fruition and that is becoming true every day. That's the only way we're going to see the criminal justice system become more just, um, the bench become more impartial. And that's the only way those kind of misconceptions and stereotypes about the criminal justice system are going to start dissipating and go away is if and when defendants and our clients who come into court see people who represent them in court and on the bench um, when they're facing the scariest time in their lives and the most difficult decisions that they have to make. So that gives me hope. I hope it continues. I hope this trend continues. Um, and as long as that's the case, I, I will keep doing this work and I will continue being proud of you know, the office that I work in, but we definitely have a lot of work to do. And I hope talks like these about how uh, Frank talks about this type of work and what we have done and what we can continue to do will inspire more people from Berkeley Law to pursue this career. Thank you. Uh, Joe, what is one hope that you have for your personal work or for the, the field going forward? I wish our work be, um... I hope that our work becomes less essential. I wish our society would stop um, dealing with any sort of, either, whether it be deviance or poverty or whatever they're labeling social ills that day. Um, I wish they'd stop funneling it through the criminal legal system. Um, I wish our society would, and our government would invest more on the front end in the communities that they all of a sudden throw all these resources at to police and to prosecute. Um, and I wish we would, you know, revive um, and rebuild our social safety net um, such that we wouldn't be in a place where all we're doing is warehousing our poor and policing and um, incarcerating. Um, so I wish we weren't so essential. Um, that's my answer. All right. And Ricardo, what's your hope for the future? 
the future. Uh, as Coney assumes, all of you, those people listening to this podcast, time moves forward, not backwards. So you are the definition of what we're going to be doing uh, tomorrow uh, in this work. And how you see this work and what you believe this work should be is, is, uh, is what it will be. So you know, don't quit. Have that heart. Have that passion. Bring it to the work. You know, tell me what it's supposed to look like tomorrow. Uh, don't let me tell you because I already did that. I got I had my time uh, to do that. So I'm hopeful that uh, there are more impassioned uh, Berkeley grads, Berkeley law students who want this work. And if I can do that, look, kind of come do this work. You know, um, yeah, it's it's not fancy law firm work, whatever that means. You know, and you're not your office isn't going to necessarily have an incredible view of downtown San Francisco or whatever city it is you choose to work for. And you're gonna work the same crappy hours, I get it. But the work is, as I said at the beginning, there is no more noble or important work in the law than this work. And if you are a black or brown student, we need you in this work. Oh my God, I mean, I know you're a superstar. You know, it's like you're being recruited because there's so few black and brown students in law right now, even fewer than there were when I was there and across and fewer in Berkeley. And I know you're being recruited just like an athlete, you know, and people are giving you all these wonderful. And if you grew up poor, like I did, the idea of making, you know, $150,000 a year walking out of school, it's like, oh my God. And I'm asking you, almost pleading for you, don't. Don't unless you have to. Don't unless it's your passion, you wanna do tax law and it draws you in. Um, do this work. We need you. There is no better work. And the last pitch I'll do for that. If you're a Star Wars fan, and I know a lot of you are, this is it. No one wants to be work for the Empire. No one wants to be a part of the Empire. Everybody wants to be part of the Rebel Alliance. It's just a fact. When you were watching the movies, you didn't say, oh, I'm going to put on a Stormtrooper outfit and go blast. Well, miss everybody. I want to be part of the Rebel Alliance. If you come work for me, I cannot give you a lightsaber. That would be irresponsible, but I will, I promise you, I will teach you how to use the force. So come join us. Wonderful. Well, on that note, I want to thank you all very much for this great conversation. Armilla Staley Ngomo, Ricardo Garcia, and Joe Goldstein Breyer. It's been a delight speaking with you today. So thanks very much. And thanks to everyone listening too. Thank you. Thank you. Me, Stephanie. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Stephanie.